A black and gusty day then, Tom, as Sabbaths in these parts mostly are. I saw a crop of them as a child, and I don't remember a sunny one. I hardly remember outdoors at all, except when I was hurried through it like a child criminal on my way to church. But I am running ahead already, for Pym on this particular day was not yet born. The time is all your father's life ago, plus half a dozen months. The place a seaboard town, not far from this one, with more of a slope to it and a thicker tower. But this one will do quite as well. A swirling, sopping, doom-laden mid-morning, take my word for it, and myself, as I say, an unborn ghost, not ordered, not delivered, and certainly not paid for. Myself a deaf microphone, planted but inactive in any but the biological meaning. Old leaves, old pine needles, and old confetti stick to the wet church steps as the humble flow of worshippers files in for its weekly dose of perdition or salvation, though I never saw that much to choose between the two of them. And myself, a mute and fetal spy, unconsciously fulfilling his first mission in a place normally devoid of targets. Except that today something is up. There's a buzz around, and its name is Rick. There's a spark of mischief to their piety today they can't keep dim, and it comes from inside themselves, from the smouldering centre of their dark little sphere, and Rick is its owner and its origin and its instigator. You can read it everywhere, in the portentous rolling tread of the brown-suited deacon, in the fluttering and exhaling of the hatted women, who arrive in a rush, imagining they are late, then sit blushing through their white face powder because they are early. Everyone agog, everyone on tiptoe, and a first-class turnout, as Rick would have remarked proudly. And probably he did, for he loved a full house, whatever happened. Never mind, it was his own hanging. A few of them have come by car, such wonders of the day as Lanchesters and singers, others by trolleybus, and some have walked. And God see rain has given them beards of cold inside their cheap fox stoles, and God see wind is cutting through the threadbare surge of their Sunday best. Yet there is not one of them, however he has come, who does not brave the weather a second longer, to pause and goggle at the notice board, and confirm with his own eyes what the bush telegraph has been telling him these several days. Two posters are fixed to it, both smeared by rain, both of the passer-by as dreary as cups of cold tea. Yet to those who know the code, they transmit an electrifying signal. The first, in orange, proclaims the £5,000 appeal mounted by the Baptist Women's League to provide a reading room, though all of them know that no book will ever be read in it, that it will be a place to set out homemade cakes and photographs of leprous children in the Congo. A plywood thermometer, designed by Rick's best craftsman, is fastened to the railings, revealing that the first thousand has already been achieved. The second notice, green, declares that today's address will be given by the minister, all welcome. But this information has been corrected. A rigid bulletin has been pinned over it, typed in full like a legal warning, with the comically misplaced capital letters that in these parts signal omens. Due to unforeseen circumstances, so make peace watermaster, justice of the peace and liberal member of parliament for this constituency will provide today's message. Appeal committee please to remain behind afterwards for an extraordinary meeting. Make peace watermaster himself, and they know why. Elsewhere in the world, Hitler is winding himself up to set fire to the universe, 
In America and Europe, the miseries of the Depression are spreading like an incurable plague, and Jack Brotherhood's forebears are abetting them or not, according to whatever spurious doctrine of the day prevails in the deniable corridors of Whitehall. But the congregation doesn't presume to hold opinions on these impenetrable aspects of God's purpose. Theirs is the dissenting church, and their temporal overlord is Sir Makepeace Watermaster, the greatest preacher and liberal ever born, and one of the highest in the land, who gave them this very building out of his own purse. He didn't, of course. His father Goodman gave it to them. But Makepeace, having succeeded to the fiefdom, has a way of forgetting that his father existed. Old Goodman was a Welshman, a preaching, singing, widowed, miserable pottery man, with two children, twenty-five years apart, of whom Makepeace is the elder. Goodman came here, sampled the clay, sniffed the sea air, and built a pottery. A couple of years later he built two more, and imported cheap migrant labour to man them, first low Welsh like himself, and afterwards, and cheaper still and lower, the persecuted Irish. Goodman lured them with his tied cottages, starved them with his rotten wages, and beat the fear of hell into them from his pulpit, before himself being taken off to paradise. Witness the unassuming monument to him, six thousand feet high, which stood in the pottery forecourt, until a few years ago, when the whole lot was ripped down to make way for a bungalow estate, and good riddance. And today, due to unforeseen circumstances, that same makepeace, Goodman's only son, is coming down from his mountain top, Although the circumstances have been foreseen by everyone except himself, the circumstances are as palpable as the pews we wait in, as immovable as the watermaster tiles the pews are bolted to, as fateful as the rasping clock that wheezes and whistles between every chime, like a dying sow fighting off the awful end. Picture the gloom of it, how it stultified its young and dragged them down, its prohibition of everything exciting that they cared about, from Sunday newspapers to popery, from psychology to art, from flimsy underwear to high spirits to low spirits, from love to laughter and back again. I don't think there was a corner of the human state where their disapproval did not fall. Because if you don't understand the gloom of it, you'll not understand the world that Rick was running away from, or the world he was running towards, or the twisting relish that buzzes and tickles like a flea in every humble breast this dark Sabbath, as the last chimes merge with the drumming of the rain, and the first great trial of young Rick's life begins. Rick pims for the high jump at last, says the word. And what more awesome executioner than Makepeace himself, highest in the land, justice of the peace, and liberal member of parliament, to adjust the noose around his neck? With the last chime of all, the strains of the voluntary die also. The congregation holds its breath and starts counting to a hundred while it seeks out its favourite actors. The two watermaster women have arrived early. They sit shoulder to shoulder in the pew for notables, directly beneath the pulpit. On almost any other Sunday, Makepeace would have been roosting there between them, all six foot six of him, his long head cocked to one side while he listened to the voluntary with his moist little rosebud ears. But not today, because today is extra. Today make pieces in the wings conferring with our minister and certain worried trustees from the appeal committee. Make pieces wife, known as Lady Nell, is not yet fifty, but already she is hunched and shriveled like a witch, with a habit of flicking her greying head without warning, 
as if she were shaking off flies. And next to her, a tiny, earnest statue beside Nell's pecking and stupidity, perches Dorothy, rightly called Dot, an immaculate speck of a lady, young enough to be Nell's daughter instead of Makepeace's sister. And she is praying, praying to her maker. She is pushing her tiny, scrumpled fists into her eyes while she pledges her life and death to him, if only he will hear her and make it right. Baptists do not kneel before God, Tom. They squat. But my Dorothy would have stretched herself flat on the watermaster tiles and kissed the Pope's big toe that day if God would have let her off the hook.